welcome to Making of a Historian, the podcast chronicling one grad student's quest to study first comprehensive exams. Now, maybe you noticed, maybe you didn't, but I did not put out a podcast on Friday or Saturday. Uh, I couldn't even manage to read a book. I was kind of either burnt out or sick or frustrated or something, but I'm back here today. So for the past week or so, we've been talking about the 19th century from kind of a medium distance. We've been looking at the British family and the British home. But for this next week, we're going to be zooming out and we're going to be talking about the 19th century from a much, much larger perspective. We can start by noticing how much the 19th century still survives in our imagination. So if you saw a guy in a top hat walking down the street, what would you think of him? You would think, this guy's rich, and he wants me to know that he's rich. But that's kind of weird because I don't know about you, but the only times that I've ever seen a top hat on a person have been in some sort of prom or something. Why do we have that image of a top-headed capitalist? Well, that's because in the 19th century, capitalists wore top hats, and there's something about that experience that is burned in our collective memory. Another way we can chart this importance is through words. Now I'm gonna give you a list of words that were coined between 1789 and 1848. And this list comes from Eric Hobsbawm's Age of Revolution. Here they are. Industry, industrialist, factory, middle class and working class, capitalism and socialism and aristocracy, railway, liberal and conservative, meaning political terms, nationality, the job scientist and engineer and sociology and statistician and statistics and journalism and ideology and strike. All of those words were coined in the early 19th century because they needed to describe something new. And it's that something new that we're going to be exploring. I want to tell you that this something new is the arrival of the first global century. To convince you that this spread really did happen, and to explain how it happened, we're going to explore three interrelated themes over the next couple weeks. These are the rise of factories, the rise of finance, and the rise of the firm. But today I'm going to give you a bird's eye view of these three processes. Let's talk about the rise of factories first, or probably more accurately, the rise of machines. We know this is the Industrial Revolution. Now the big thing here is the feedback between coal mining and railroads. What does this do? Well, you need coal to run railroads. Railroads can ship freight faster and cheaper than any other land-based transport system at the time. This means that it pushes down the cost of bulk goods, including coal, meaning that railroads are suddenly a lot cheaper. Also, because coal is now cheaper, it means that it's a lot cheaper to make metal stuff. Because railroads push down the price of bulk shipping, it means the integration first of national markets and then, with the advent of the, of the steamship, international markets. And I'm going to just give you one fact to show you how drastic this transport revolution pushed by machinery is. From 1820 to 1870, freight rates between Odessa and England fell over 50%. And that's huge because it means that distant places can suddenly compete with one another in bulk goods. And most of the stuff that we care about is bulky clothes, food, animals. This is the era where you get grain being shipped from Russia to Europe. This is the era where you get animals being shipped from Australia and Argentina to Europe. So here's the important interaction. 
Coal and machines allow people to build railroads and other metal structures. These create a transport revolution that makes the cost of shipping drastically less. This in turn makes it possible for people to build more machines and trade more stuff. But there's a problem with this virtuous cycle of coal and railways and steamships and factories, and that is that coal and railways and steamship and factories are really, really, really expensive to build, and you don't really see a payoff until the entire thing is built. This means that you need a lot of a particular resource, and that resource is a really, really loaded word. Are you guys ready for it? It is capital. The second big trend of the 19th century that we'll be exploring is the rise of global capital and the rise of the new financial world. The first piece of this new global financial system is free trade, and that means the lowering of tariffs. The big date that this happens is 1846, when Britain ends the Corn Law and gets free trade, which basically means it will allow things to be shipped in and shipped out without having any bounties or tariffs on it. This encouraged a trade boom between countries, which then themselves had their own free trade policies, either you know voluntarily as in the case of Europe, or not voluntarily as the case of the colonies. Notably, a couple colonies did not have free trade systems. They had protectionist systems. The big notable one is America. At this time when the British world was knitting itself together through cheap, easy trade, America put up protectionist barriers so that its industries could grow. The second big element of this system is the gold standard, which, if you're anything like me, seems like this kind of confusing and weird system that for some reason people in the 19th century really, really, really care about. But here's the important thing to remember. When countries have a gold standard, it means that their currencies are easily convertible. It means that there's a fixed exchange rate between countries, and this makes trade easier. But it also means that the countries lose their ability to alter their own currency, which in some cases can be really, really, really economically useful. It also led to a synchronization of trade cycles and banking crises. The third thing about this global financial system is foreign investment. And this becomes really, really important when we think about all of those new railroads and factories that are sprouting up all over the world. So the thing is, is that Britain and to a lesser extent France in the second half of the 19th century had a lot of spare capital. That means they have a lot of money sitting around that's not being used. And if you're a good capitalist, you want that money to work for you so you can get you know, profits. What they did was that they shifted capital away from investing in stuff in Britain and instead put it towards investing in stuff in other countries. So net overseas assets in Britain grew from 7% of national wealth in 1850 to 14% in 1870, up to 32% in 1913. This means that in 1913, one third of all of the money that was invested was invested overseas. What was this invested in? Well, mostly in government bonds. These are not investments in particular factories or, or railroads, but rather in the financial stability of particular governments. The other big thing was railroads. Both of these together accounted for 40% of British overseas investments in the 19th century. 
All of this added up to the creation of a world financial system. This is when you get options and futures markets, stock markets, bond markets. You can see this by, what else, a bunch of people getting together and gathering statistics about stuff. And the final thing we'll be looking at is the birth of the firm. So let's imagine these railroads and factories again, right? The thing about railroads is that they're incredibly big and incredibly complicated. And they can't be run by a single person like other economic activities once were. You need a limited liability joint stock company run by managers. Why do you need this? Well, railways need a ton of capital to build, and they also require extended managerial hierarchies. They need people in various places who cannot talk to each other, all knowing what the score is and being able to trust one another. The limited liability joint stock company meant that people could invest in them, they could control the management decisions, and they could share profits without the obligation to cover losses. This meant that growth was no longer dependent on one person or company. If you want to see the alternative of this, imagine if you did not have a limited liability company. You want to make an investment, say, in Coca-Cola, and then Coca-Cola suddenly collapses, and you are on the book to cover Coca-Cola's debts no matter what they are, no matter how much money you initially put in. So that's why this development of the LLC is so important. We can see the rise of the flexibility of the LLC by looking at the amount of foreign direct investment, the amount of money that people from a company in one country are invested in the business interests of another country. Okay, this is like, you know, making businesses of your own or buying buildings or factories or controlling stocks or stuff like that. In 1913, the foreign direct investment rate was 9%. It would only reach that number again in 1970. And then in 1914, it was over. In days, it was over. In days, this entire system that had been chugging along for decades was a memory. What happened? Well, what happened was World War I, a huge European war. Domino after domino of this international system was closed. Free trade was stopped because countries wanted to preserve the trade of uh, materials that would be useful for war. Stock markets closed all across the world because people didn't want capital to flee. Factories were shifted from producing consumer goods to producing war material for the state. Countries shut their doors to immigrants. Internationalism, cosmopolitanism, and even capitalism became bad words as countries shifted to nationalism and protectionism. Rates of globalization would not return to 19th century rates until the 1970s or even the 1990s. Right now, we're actually living at a peak of globalization. Foreign direct investment, I think, is in around the 30% mark. Firms are multinational, supply chains are international, we eat food that comes from Mexico and Guatemala and Argentina, and we travel to all these places for our holidays whenever we choose to. And the global world has its critics, often quite trenchant. The big divide politically right now, I think, is between globalists and nationalists, between people who stand for free trade, free markets, free movements of people, and between people who stand for protectionism, nationalism, and economic stability. And it's in a divide we're unused to seeing. 
we're not used to political lines being drawn along this particular set of questions. And I catch a ton of people misunderstanding what's happening with our new president because they're trying to fit old political labels on new actors. Just like with 1914, the global world that we today take for granted might end. And it might end really, really quickly. It might take just a couple of sparks to set the whole thing alight and to make everything close down again. So thanks very much for listening to Making of Historian. I'll be back tomorrow. I hope if I don't get another burnout thing, um, I would like to thank everybody who's liked the Facebook page and who's left a review. It's super important and super helpful. And it lets me know that you're out there. Most of the time I'm doing this just alone in my room. And so it's nice to know that there are people listening. Thanks, of course, to Jonathan Lear, who did our music. You should give him money at his Bandcamp page. Also, thanks to Duncan Barton, who did the icon that we have. If you like the show, rate us and review us on iTunes, share us on social media, and pop over to the website at historian.live. There you can find pictures, show notes, including the books that I read for today. <laughs>